Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. After a long but far from uneventful summer, domestic politics definitively are back today with the Dáil returning to debate a number of questions on the energy and cost of living crises. While negotiations between the government departments over the final shape of the budget are ongoing and that's due to be delivered by Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath in less than a fortnight, so the clock is ticking. Meanwhile, the death of Queen Elizabeth II has put a temporary stop to the initial moves of Liz Truss's new government in the UK, but that's going to come to an end very very soon with existential questions over the Northern Ireland Protocol remaining to be resolved. So there is no shortage of subjects to discuss and with me to do exactly that are political editor Pat Leahy and political correspondent Harry McGee. Hello to you both. Hi Hugh. Hello Hugh. Harry, I'm going to start with you because you drew the short straw this morning and you were up at the crack of dawn to deliver the email Inside Politics Digest to Irish Times subscribers. They're always delighted to get it, but somebody has to do it. I should mention that it's one of the many benefits of being an Irish Times subscriber. Yeah, I was up with the lark and I was very chirpy at uh, five o'clock this morning. I'm less chirpy now um, and the day is beginning to to, to wear in. So perhaps the, the most unenviable part of the uh, Dáil season is the roster when you see that you have been given that dreaded E and that E means that you are on the early shift and that means that you have to get up at five o'clock in the morning and uh, my physiological and biological uh, uh, system has never quite got um, used to it. But uh, needs must, as they say, Uh, we have to provide a service to our readers. Well, you suffer so that others may benefit from your wisdom. That's that's it. I'm, I'm self-sacrifice is the name of the game. We're here just in the service of others, as always. And so you set out the stall for the return to full-time politics today. There's a cabinet meeting and then there's the Dáil meeting today. And as I said at the top of the podcast, there is no shortage of big stories to address on the agenda. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Yes, the cabinet has met today and it, it's, it will have had a very full agenda, much fuller than it has had during... Uh, the recess. Uh, in addition to that, the legislative programme for this dull term will be published later on today. I think there are 38 bills uh, in total. Um, some of them will, uh, of course, do have to do with the budget, uh, which is being published earlier this year. I think it's the first September budget um, ever, uh, the first conventional September budget uh, ever. But there's a lot of others. They, they're, they're creating safe areas around uh, facilities uh, where termination services are provided. Uh, there's a long-awaited human tissues uh, bill, uh, which will um, pave the way for opt-out uh, organ donation, uh, among uh, other things. And there's legislation, for example, uh, that will very strictly uh, regulate the use of e-cigarettes and vaping. So they're just in the health areas and, of course, housing, finance, uh, social protection, arts, uh, communications, energy lots of bills in those areas as well. So a very busy legislative uh, season. I think one, oh, the thing that I always look at, first of all, 
uh, to kind of to uh, see what the tone or the mood, the prevailing mood of the Doyle will be uh, is the private members' uh, motions to see what will set the agenda in the forthcoming Doyle term. Sometimes it's hard uh, to see what's going to happen, but this time uh, there's absolutely no mistake that it's all about cost of living and energy. And of course, that's not a surprise given everything that's happened over the past month. But we have a private member's motion uh, from Sinn Féin today uh, proposing uh, a 3.8 billion cost of living package and challenging the government's own plans in relation to cost of living. Uh, We have a similar private member's motion from the regional group uh, tomorrow. And if you go to the upper house, the Shannad, the Fianna Fáil senators have a private member's motion on the cost of living as well. So that's going to be the dominant theme today. And I think it's going to be the dominant theme between now and Christmas. And I suppose in a way the mood for the season ahead has been set already by the various party thinkings and, you know, I'll come to Pat in a moment, he attended some of them. Uh, you attended the Sinn Féin one and given that you, you just mentioned them there that I, I read with, with some amusement, Miriam Lord's colour piece about how uh, brilliantly choreographed the whole thing was and the somewhat uh, somewhat monarchical appearance of, of Mary Lou MacDonald underneath a, underneath a triumphal arch, I think she, she was describing. This is a party yeah. in full confidence um, that seems to know exactly what it's doing. Yeah, they do their donuts even better than the French, you know. They, they know how to coordinate uh, their, their uh, media appearance and they've been doing it for 20 years uh, before in Downing Street and Hillsborough during the peace process. And now in relation uh, to the Doyle, there is a kind of uh, a pep in the step when it comes to Sinn Féin. And why wouldn't there be? The party is doing extraordinarily well in opinion polls. It seems to have uh, uh, attracted more popular support uh, than uh, other parties. And one of the reasons is because it it has been pursuing uh, an out and out uh, populist uh, stance in relation to opposition. Now, Fianna Fáil and Fine are whinging about that, but... They are no strangers to that in uh, opposition, though it might be questioned whether they are doing it, that they have ever done it in such a sustained manner as Sinn Féin uh, has done. And, uh, you know, Micheál Martin, during the last all session, accused Mary uh, Lou MacDonald of uh, indulging in an each way bet when it came to policies. And there is some evidence to back some of that in relation to some of their policies, at least. Uh, For example, the party is uh, in favour of modular housing, uh, Maria, as a as a solution uh, to the crisis, the accommodation crisis we have with the huge numbers of Ukrainian refugees and others coming into the country. Uh, but when she was asked about it yesterday, uh, she said she was only in favour of it when a very long list of conditions were fulfilled that would take many, many months uh, for them uh, to be achieved. And then she finished with a kind of a grace note saying, you know, would people be happy to be living in tiny, whiny uh, modular houses that were only 40 metres uh, square, you know, uh, would it be fair to those peoples. So the conditions, the but-ifs that she put in in relation to modular housing almost seemed to put her against uh, rather than in favour. And we've seen the same kind of uh, equivocation coming from Sinn Féin in relation to climate change in particular, where it's for climate change. But then it lists along, you know, list of grievances in relation to measures that have and haven't been done and uh, puts in kind of tests that that, uh, would almost be impossible uh, to to surpass if you were to implement any of of the measures. 
And it uh, has been the same in relation to other policy areas as well. So, I mean, its position is populist. Other parties have done it in the past. Have they done it in such a sustained manner as Sinn Féin have done since 2020? Uh, that's another question. Indeed. And Pat, I mean, you were at the Fianna Fáil thinking, and I'm sure some of this uh, behaviour causes great irritation and angst amongst the ranks of Fianna Fáil. But you don't have to look too far back into history to see times when that party behaved exactly the same way in opposition. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's particularly unusual for an opposition to make lavish spending plans and promise to do the devil and all when it gets into government. That tends to be what oppositions do. Um, I think what Sinn Féin, uh, though, are, are, are bringing to that particular approach is a relentlessness and a discipline about how their message comes uh, across. And Harry was describing it in his analysis piece this morning as uh, as, as populism. That is not, that is not, Harry's own description. It's a description, and we've discussed this before here, that is used by Sinn Féin themselves. They describe it as left uh, populism, as uh, as a tactic and an approach uh, to politics. And that's all fine and well. Um, the, the danger with populism is that it tends to set up easy answers to what are difficult questions. It also tends to you do you know divide societies into sharply delineated groups and you know i think there are there's you know there there's potential dangers in uh, in in that approach the Sinn Féin the Sinn Féin approach is to divide society between the you know the the insiders the establishment and the virtuous common people who are victimized by the self-interested actions of uh, of, of of the insiders and the uh, the establishment and you know that's not a particularly original playbook but it is a very effective one and i think we're seeing the fruits of that in you know the opinion polls and so forth uh, at uh, at the moment that are showing Sinn Féin to be by some distance the most popular party in um, uh, in in the country and while we are you know probably quite a bit away from a general election which will take place on a political landscape that is unknowable really uh, at uh, at the moment uh, you know it's not the the boldest political prediction that you'll you'll hear today say that Sinn Féin is very much odds on to uh, to lead uh, the the next government on the foot of that oppositional uh, approach but when you do find yourself in government what all parties previously have found is that the simple answers that you proposed to complex problems tend to be a little more difficult to implement than you had previously uh, suggested. So will that happen to Sinn Féin? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I guess they have to get into to, to government first. But it's certainly a danger attendant with that populist oppositional approach. Well, there's two ways to think about that, Harry, and you have a go at one of them in this morning's Irish Times. I mean, one is just that, you know, damn the begrudgers, this is our policy, we'll maximise our electoral gains at the next election, and then we'll deal with the realities that are presented to us. The other one is... We need to be a little bit careful because Irish political history tells us that the electorate does punish political parties who overpromise in the run up to an election and under deliver um, when they get into power. And if Sinn Féin has the very realistic expectation that it will be in government after the next election, it is time 
for it to start repositioning itself slightly. And you suggest it is in the process of doing that, moving towards the centre left in terms of its relationship with the business community, for example. Yeah, I mean, it has made a very big transition over the past 20 years. It's Sometimes it's been nuanced and it has been subtle. But if you look at where the party is positioned now compared to where it was positioned 10 or 15 years ago, you know, it has definitely moved more into uh, the mainstream, uh, more into uh, the, the centre. And sometimes it's happened quite quickly. I mean, there was a very dramatic uh, reverse ferret in terms of its disposition to Russia earlier this year. Uh, when Vladimir decided that he was going to uh, rush the ramparts and uh, uh, and invade uh, Ukraine. And, and that happened, I mean, it, it wasn't that they were particularly pro-Russian, but they weren't anti-Russian either. But uh, the, the, the tune was changed uh, very promptly uh, once uh, that happened. It's changed its attitude as well, of course, towards the uh, European Union. Uh, we heard Eurosceptic back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And then there was this phrase uh, that we heard in the noughties, Eurocritical. And um, that's a phrase that I haven't heard being uttered from a Sinn Féin spokesperson for quite some time. It's not, not to say that they're going around waving the star-spangled banner of the European Union and uh, and uh, backing Ursula von der Leyen and the Commission at every hand and turn. There's probably a fair degree of, of, of scepticism and criticism of Europe still. But it's sort of voce compared to what it was uh, several years ago. Now, the, the, the difficulty I was pointing out in the piece this morning was that they, they have been moving, and Pat and others have been reporting on this, they have been moving to reassure uh, corporations and businesses uh, uh, and institutions, you know, that if Sinn Féin is in government, there's no need for everybody to uh, to exit the country very quickly because they will be a responsible government and that they will not be a government that is anti-business or anti-commerce or anti-enterprise. And I'm sure that Mary Lou Macdonald in her visit to Silicon Valley was reassuring uh, the tech companies with whom she was in contact over there uh, that that's going to be the case, that there's no need for them to up sticks and to to, to go uh, elsewhere. The difficulty with that is is that it will invariably uh, involve a modification of uh, policies. And by doing that, they will alienate uh, some of the people who have supported them over the past couple of years because they have been, you know, campaigning against things. And suddenly when they go into government, they are no longer against things. Uh, They are probably neither for or against, but perhaps even they will be for things. And that will certainly lose some support at a very quick pace. I mentioned modular housing earlier on. Uh, data centres might prove to be a bit of a problem for Sinn Féin going forward. The party took a quite a strong line in relation to the further development of uh, data centres. Um, it was pointed out to them yesterday that TikTok wants to invest very heavily in Ireland with the further 1,500 jobs. But part of that uh, would be uh, establishing another data centre or data centre in Ireland. I never get the pronunciation of that right. I'm not sure if it's data or data. I always say data, but that's besides the point. And, um, you know, she was asked yesterday, well, will they oppose a data centre uh, for TikTok? And uh, she was quite um, very qualified in the answer she gave. It was very hard to discern whether Sinn Féin are for or against data centres uh, going forward. But that's the type of political uh, uh, challenge it's going to face, trying to square the circle and try to balance the needs between being a populist 
left opposition party and also being a responsible party of government as it sees itself and not alienating uh, interests that might not be of the left. So it's it's going to be a tricky route for it to navigate if it is going to go into government over the next couple of years. Whatever, Pat, about data or data, potato, potato, <laughs> tomato, tomato, that in some ways there's another way of looking at this, which uh, Jared Howland in an excoriating column in the Irish Times yesterday, sort of takes, which is really that all Sinn Féin are, is the most extreme version of the default position in Irish politics, which is give the people what they want, regardless of whether it's the right the right thing for them. Um, and his argument really is, is that the two catch-all parties are really just doing a version of what Sinn Féin is doing, in that they're pandering to the electorate's desire to, uh, I suppose, to have a sort of Boris Johnson policy of cakeism, both having it and eating it. Yeah, I, I read Jerry's column and he, he's, he's written a couple of things in that vein in, in recent weeks. And at one level, of course, you know, he is correct in that the response to the government um, of the, the response to this government of every crisis that it has faced really has been to throw money on it. But that is the instinct of politicians is to, uh, to spend money, to spend public money to uh, ad- address political problems. But... I, you know, I'm not sure Irish politicians are particularly unique uh, in in that. And, you know, the Irish political system actually is, I think, kind of hardwired to be more responsive to the daily concerns of voters than many than many others. Partly, that's a function of political culture here, but also it's a it's a it's a, it's a function of our electoral system, which keeps elected politicians right up to the highest level, um, very close uh, to their to their electorates. I was uh, yesterday morning, I was having my breakfast in the Mullingar Park Hotel. And uh, as I was having my uh, dirty big fry, the Taoiseach was at an adjoining table. Uh, we were both attending the Fianna Fáil Thinking Tisha was at a turn, uh, at a nearby table, having his uh, muesli and uh, dried prunes and other things that never graced the breakfast table in the Leahy household, and uh, and he was interrupted by a succession of supplicants uh, to his table. Some of them people from Fianna Fáil, others um, simply passing breakfasters who wanted to uh, have a word with him uh, about the budget and what he should do or what uh, what he shouldn't do. So, you know, I think this is a feature of our political system to be responsive to that. And if you look around, what are other European countries doing? Their elected politicians are also throwing money at this problem, which is for many people a problem of a shortage of money to deal with um, with the spiralling cost of uh, of energy we maybe have a particular and uh, and personalized version of that a political approach uh, in Ireland and we also have the uh, we also have the good fortune i suppose to have very significant public resources uh, to throw at, at at this particular problem but i think you know that is this is the approach being taken by politicians everywhere. I'll say one more thing uh, on, 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 on that just um, as an addendum to it and, and that is that there is also a very strong push from the Department of Finance and the Department of Public Expenditure to hold on to some of the surplus as a hedge against uh, future needs. So I think there are 
arguments being made behind the scenes. There was a meeting of the three government uh, the leaders of the three government parties and Minister of Finance, Minister of Public Expenditure last night. Um, very little coming out of that last night uh, or this morning, but I would be surprised if it didn't feature this argument about exactly how much of the surplus should be utilised immediately to help people with their bills and how much of it um, uh, how much of it should be set aside into the rainy day fund or other such mechanisms? The one point that Jerry Howland does make, and I think it's one that you know whoever is going to be in government needs to think about, and maybe voters need to think about it as well, is that there is a diminishing electoral constituency for fiscal. Um, uh, for, I was going to say for fiscal prudishness, but rather for fiscal prudence in the country. And you know we have seen the consequences in the relatively recent past of spending all the money when we have it and then running into difficulties when it, uh, when it runs out. I quite like the, the idea of fiscal prudishness myself. I mean, I explore that at some, at some point <laughs> in the future exactly as a what it would new look like, theory. But, <laughs> but Harry, this kind of the, the, the core of this debate, which is around the size of this support package for, uh, for the people of Ireland against the winter ahead and the, uh, the spiralling costs of, of energy seems to be you know, where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? And when it comes to this budget, which is which is less than two weeks away now, and the numbers we hear, they have more than doubled, I think it's fair to say, over the over the last month alone. Yeah, I heard uh, past talking in the last couple of days about the cost of living package. There's two things, there's the budget, and then there's the cost of living package. And the cost of living package will include only once-off spending. There won't be any recurring spending in that, spending that would happen on, on a yearly basis. So it's a kind of a, a once-off payment or credit to households and to people. But Pat was talking about it earlier on the week uh, and was saying that he heard uh, first that it was going to be about one billion and then about a week later it was two billion. And in the past um, week, the whispers in government circle is that it's been pushing up towards three billion. And I mean, it's it's a classic case of auction politics where you see uh, government parties bidding a certain sum and then the accumulator effect beginning to kick in with the opposition uh, promising even more money. So the packages that have been promised uh, from the likes of Sinn Féin, Labour and Social Democrats have been closer to €4 billion Euro than €3 billion. Euros. Sinn Féin is €3.8 billion. Euro. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's quite clear that Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunne, who want to have a surplus, uh, they don't know how long more this crisis is going to last. I mean, I remember earlier on in the year reading economists talking about the 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 the, the likelihood, and they were saying there wasn't much of a likelihood that there would be a big increase in interest rates, that inflation was temporary, that everything would right itself uh, by the middle of, of the year. This was even after uh, the invasion of Ukraine had happened. But the old Harold Macmillan line of events, dear, uh, dear boy events, you know, things have ha- have changed. And now we're seeing interest rates increasing, not exponentially, but they've increased at an alarming rate, 0.75 of a percent of a percentage raise in in the past week with prospects of another half percent uh, rise in 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 interest rates in, in, over the next couple of months uh, we've seen inflation move from being a temporary blip to to see to something that's more baked in and that's more systemic and we've also seen the extraordinary rise in, in energy costs um Jack Horgan Jones had a very good piece um that that we led with a couple of days ago uh, talking about households facing bills of potentially €6,000 per annum uh, because of uh, increasing energy prices. So in the context of all of that, I mean, the government did does have to act and did have to act. That's perhaps why 
uh, with the scarifying figures that they're being presented with, uh, that they're beginning to offer uh, more money. But at the same time, there's no guarantee that all of this is going to uh, come to a shuddering halt in February and we'll be back to the situation that we were in before all this unpleasantness uh, began. I mean, there is a, a likelihood, a possibility uh, that energy prices will continue to rise into 2023, that the war will continue and that interest rates, rather than uh, steadying and going down, uh, will continue to, to, to go up. And that's why they want to try to keep some kind of surplus so that we will have some kind of a rainy day fund. Ireland actually is almost unique uh, amongst EU states in that we do have a surplus this year that we can play with. And uh, the, the manna from heaven that keeps on giving is corporation tax. Uh, uh, if we didn't have corporation tax, uh, we would have had a deficit of €5 billion Euro at the end of uh, uh, August. Instead, we have a, uh, we have a surplus of, of over €4 billion, with predictions that the corporation tax can bring in €20 billion Euro to the Irish economy this year, which is just an enormous figure. Uh, by any yardstick. But again, there's no guarantees that corporation tax will keep on giving. And already the government has been cancelled by reports and by experts both within and outside government that they really have to begin to stop relying on corporation tax as a yearly and reliable source of income for the state. Indeed, and there are dire warnings of what the consequences might be if those warnings weren't taken taken on board. Listen, we're going to take a quick break, but I want to stick with the subject of energy or perhaps the related subject as well of um, of measures for climate change. We'll be back straight after this. And you're welcome back. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm here with Pat Leahy and with Harry McGee. Uh, Pat, Harry was talking about the challenges in terms of the energy crisis over the course of this winter and perhaps into the following winter. It's worth noting that Liz Truss, who doesn't have the rainy day fund that we have here, is using borrowing to fund uh, supports for British people for the next 18 months. So that takes them through the, the two winters rather than just the single budgetary cycle that we're discussing here. But I'm interested in, well, in, in what this means about the government's um, legally binding uh, commitments to hit certain measures in response to climate change. There's two quite interesting um, opinion pieces in the Irish Times today, one from Michael McDowell uh, and the other from a number of distinguished scientists who work in the area of, of climate policy. And they're coming from opposite directions, really. Uh, McDowell is highly critical of the minister um, for energy, Eamon Ryan, and his failure, as he sees it, to plan for the state's inevitable reliance on gas for the next uh, two or three decades. The scientists are critical of the fact that we, we are increasingly unlikely to meet the targets which have been set in legislation. But they both arrive at the same point, which is that there is an increasing feeling that what Eamon Ryan describes as these, quote, challenging, unquote, targets are almost certainly not going to be met. And does that not raise questions about the about the whole project, really? I don't think it raises questions about the whole project of decarbonisation, but it might raise questions about the pace at which uh, that change is implemented. And, you know, does it matter if the state misses its targets, you know, by 1% or, or, or 5% in the greater scheme of things? Perhaps uh, not, even though it would leave the state in breach of its own laws. But if the state failed to reach its targets by a margin of 20% or 25% or 
you know, then um, then I think that would matter uh, an awful lot. And, you know, people make the, you know, the irrefutable point, really, that, you know, Ireland is so small that it doesn't matter what we do in, um, that it, it, it doesn't matter what we do in, in terms of reducing our greenhouse gas uh, emissions, because if the big polluters continue to uh, pollute, then the effects on climate are going to continue uh, no matter what. But, you know, what is it Harry be able to tell you is that half of the world's emissions come from uh, come from the large number of smaller countries. So, you know, if smaller countries don't decarbonise as Ireland uh, as Ireland plans uh, to do, then you're 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 back with that you're back with that same problem. I I, I do think that the politics of this are going to get more difficult um, for for the government because. And I think I think the politics of this are the you know the how this the energy crisis potentially plays itself out could expose a fissure in the government that goes to the very heart of what it is about, uh, in that it, it is believed on the Fianna Fáil Fine Gael side uh, of the government that whatever happens, there cannot be blackouts, and that that this would potentially destroy uh, the government because. Lots of people would conclude that the government is simply not up to the basic, the very, the very basic tasks of of, of 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 managing the country. One of which is to keep the lights on and uh, and uh, and power flowing. Whereas there is a view in parts of the Green Party that the necessity to decarbonize and change the way we live, the way we consume energy, and the way we live, is so acute that some sort of that some sort of shock might not be the worst thing in the world. And I won't say there's an insouciance in the Greens about black about the blackouts. There isn't. But there is an unwillingness to there is an unwillingness to to tackle them in or to tackle the danger of them through things like, for instance, uh, uh, LNG. And I think that you know there is more to the energy supply problem than simply than simply that but if it becomes acute over the winter and into next year and i do get a sense from some people in government that they think they'll be all right this winter but next winter could be uh could be a slightly bigger problem um you know i i think that could expose rifts in in government that could become quite destabilizing because with the best will in the world you know Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael's conversion to the need to decarbonize is a relatively recent one whereas it is something that the Greens have believed and have been talking about for uh, for a long time it is something that they believe to the very core of their political being whereas for a lot of people in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael it was something they had to agree to as a price to putting the government together. What do you think, Harry? You've covered this a lot over the last couple of years. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that strikes me, uh, and it's kind of a difficult one because um, I remember um, in 2008, 2009, uh, when governments were making noises about uh, reducing emissions from the aviation sector, uh, Michael O'Leary was railing against it. And he said that um, the only thing that will actually reduce emissions will be if you have a good old fashioned uh, recession. And lo and behold, we had a good old fashioned recession. 
and our, um, and emissions did reduce. So we're facing a period of extreme hardship now and it's going to be really, really tough on an awful lot of people. But I think one of the side effects of it, you know, and it will be, I think that that, that the, the, uh, the, the rise in emissions that we've seen in the past couple of years uh, will begin to uh, plateau and will perhaps begin to uh, fall. I mean, it's, it's, it's far from ideal situation uh, to to talk about how you reduce emissions by saying, you know, it's only on the back of the hardships that fa- how families and households uh, will face that that we will, you know, get a reduction in, in emissions. A little bit like the, uh, the scene in the office when, <laughs> when Ricky Gervais breaks the bad news to everybody that they're all being fired. And then he starts off by saying, well, the good news is, with a big smile on his face, is that I have been promoted. Uh, so that's the kind of, the, 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 the political context uh, of it. But I think that the, the increase in prices, uh, uh, especially in energy, uh, will will force a lot of people really to to, uh, to 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 have a very good hard look at their own use of energy. And besides getting supplements from the government to help m- make them meet costs during the winter and into spring, I also suspect that people will begin to look at things like, you know, uh, retrofitting their homes, maybe starting off by converting their attics, uh, for which there are very generous grants available. I think that you will see a, a an acceleration of the phenomenon that's already happening of people moving from uh, fossil fuel cars to electric cars. I think we'll see a very big acceleration of that over the next couple of years. Of course, there might be supply chain issues in relation to that as well, uh, that they mightn't be able to service uh, the demand. So there might be some bottlenecks uh, there. Well, we're not going to have a million cars by 2030, are we? A million electric no, cars? No, but... Even, even if we wanted them, No, I don't think we will. Well, it won't be... I think it's about 800,000 private cars and then the rest will be kind of service cars and vans and, and what have you. But I don't think we're going to have anything like that by uh, 2030. Wouldn't that require basically every new car that is sold over the next six, seven years to be an electric Absolutely. car? Absolutely. And, you know, and that's... And they're what? 50 grand. 15% this this year? Uh, yeah, less. it's less. I mean, they are moving up and it will accelerate, but we won't get anywhere near um, a million. And they're still very expensive in comparison uh, to petrol cars. But Harry, can I just say, we all agree on that. And I think most yeah. sensible people who look at it agree on it. Does it not undermine the credibility of the government if it's still sticking to that target when we all know? I mean, that's not a great way to do business, is it? No, there's, but there's a 51% target for 2030. And that's not, I, that's not going to be achieved uh, because if you look at the, the, I mean, a lot of it will be depending on, on a very quick move towards uh, offshore wind power. Uh, and for that to happen, I mean, it's not just that, it's not just sticking a turbine in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. For that to happen, the, the floating uh, 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 turbine technology has to be perfected, has to be a little bit cheaper. Uh, you'd then have to gear up all of the ports uh, that to, to service those massive wind farms. I mean, if you look at the Dogger Bay wind farm off the northeast coast of England, each turbine, it, it, it produces six gigawatts of power, which is enough for a couple of million homes. But each of the turbines, the actual, the top of the propeller is higher than the Eiffel Tower. So it's not just putting, it's not just sticking any old windmill out of the ocean. You're, stick, you're putting in infrastructure that is massive. So to do that, you have to be able to construct them, you have to have the ports uh, geared up so that they're able to service those massive wind farms. And then you have to spe- go through a period of planning 
uh, there's the, the all of the maritime legislation and the marine and offshore legislation uh, that's been prepared at the moment. That hasn't even gone through uh, uh, fully. Uh, there's a planning process. There's getting the ports geared up towards it. I mean, to, to think that, that all of that will be in place by 2030 is, in my view, wishful thinking. So, uh, yes, I do. I think the, the notion that we will have a million uh, electric vehicles on the road by 2030 is a fanciful one and one that will not be achieved. Yeah, I don't mean to be a Cassandra about all this. I just think that, that setting targets that everybody knows aren't going to be met is not necessarily the great way to go about go about anything. But anyway, we'll leave that for the moment because I'm sure we will be, be returning to it. It's a bit like when we say that the podcast is only going to last <laughs> half an hour here. Yeah, no, it's 40 minutes is our target, Fat. You've got, you've got three minutes left now. Um, I did want to briefly turn to the subject which we discussed last week with Dennis Staunton, our London editor, which was Liz Truss and the new government in the United Kingdom and what was likely to happen both in the short, medium and, and long term. And of course, the next day, everything changed, really. And for the last week now, Pat, we've been in this period of mourning in the UK, which I suspect has probably been a good thing for Liz Truss. What do you think? I think it gives her an opportunity, you know, to introduce herself as the figurehead of a, uni- of a united kingdom or united nation. Um, but I think that will, while it provides her with a short term opportunity, uh, you know, uh, a, like a, a, a platform or a, a bullhorn, uh, if you like, with which to address uh, her country, though one might say in passing that I thought her speeches and her comments were kind of anodyne and poorly scripted. And, you know, I think you know, some of the contributions made by other people, including Boris Johnson, uh, actually in the House of Commons, were, were uh, a lot more uh, impressive. But that's, that's, that's by the by. But I think that that, w- that opportunity will be, by its nature, is a is a temporary one. And I think domestically, Truss will be judged uh, by how she deals with the, uh, with the energy crisis. And we saw that she's unveiled uh, plan to cap bills, which cost as much as £150 billion by some, uh, by some estimates over the next uh, 18 months. But how she deals with the energy crisis and how that matters and impacts on people's daily lives I think will be much more important for her premiership than the royal, uh, the royal death and and funeral and uh, and all the related events that go with that. And Michael Martin will be meeting her. We gather somewhere around the time he'll be over in London for for the funeral, and there will be some sort yeah, of yeah. That's meeting. right. Both both sides were confirming that um, to me yesterday. And what I was going to say is that you know if the the energy crisis is how she will be judged initially, at least at home, then the EU will. Uh, the EU will make up its mind about the Truss administration when it, you know, when it sees if she is willing to change the approach that she led in the Johnson uh, administration by threatening to uh, unilaterally trash the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mara Sefcovic, the EU commissioner that leads the negotiations with the EU, indicated the other day, you know, that the EU was willing to eliminate checks on all but a handful of lorries every day uh, coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Now, that wasn't necessarily a new position. That is something that the EU has been talking about um, 
you know, since last February when the negotiations between the two sides uh, broke down. But I think what Brussels and Dublin are waiting for is a signal from Truss that um, that she is willing to negotiate meaningfully and willing to find a solution that is based not on a ripping up of the profile, but on uh, changes and perhaps very significant changes on the way the protocol is implemented. And we haven't seen those signals yet. There is an understanding, of course, in Dublin and Brussels that she's got other things on her plate now. And there isn't, uh, there isn't a huge degree of urgency right now. But there will be as you go towards the end of this month and into October because the deadline in Northern Ireland for a resumption of the power sharing institutions is the end of October. And if they are not up and running by then, that is to say, if a solution that is acceptable to the DUP isn't arrived at between the UK government and uh, the European Commission, then you're into fresh, uh, you're into fresh elections uh, in, in, in the North. So I think... Dublin and Brussels are waiting, they're waiting to see. Um, there isn't a huge degree of optimism, but there is a sense that there is an opportunity if the British government uh, should wish to seize it. Well, I should say that despite Pat's, as usually, uh, mistaken assumption of a 30-minute podcast, he has, as usual, brought us up to the 40-minute mark when the bells do actually toll on the podcast. So we are going to leave it there. Thanks to Harry for joining us today. Also to Pat, to our producer, Declan Conlon. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.